our economies and societies are designed increasingly to actually destroy deep thought and deep work. So I think one of the other problems that I think is, is our context is fundamentally undermining innovation and because it doesn't create the capacity for deep work at all. And that means most of the work that we're seeing is not deep innovation. It's fundamentally what I would call synthesis, i.e. taking one idea, fusing it to another, and creating Frankenstein next-generation solutions. It's not deep work. Hi, everyone. I'm Fabio, the host of the Shaping Chaos podcast. And today I'm talking with uh, Andy Johar, the founder of Dark Matter Labs, where he focuses ra on radical redesigning the bureaucratic and uh, institutional infrastructure of our cities, towns, and, and regions. Indy is also an active voice behind the Boring, uh, the boring Revolution. Um, the revolution where uh, it talks about um, focusing on resor our resources, on solving very complex and very difficult problems, rather than the, just going for the attractive and low-hanging fruit. Um, Indy, I first heard about uh, your work at the conference in Malmo. And uh, you said something that uh, I think relates a lot with this podcast. You said, in the complexity of, of a challenge, we go to the obvious. And the question that I, I always ask my guests is about around chaos. And this seems to relate very well. So the question I ask is, um, have you ever been in a particular situation in your business or while you are consulting with your clients? Um, and if you have, how do you manage that chaos? Are there any tools? How do you manage that chaos? Uh, I like the fact we start with the simple questions, Fabio. <laughs> There's one, one thing to say that something is uncertain mm -hmm. and uncertainty. And there's okay. a difference between uncertainty and chaos. Mm -hmm. And there's also a difference between complexity, chaos, and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that those are really important to start to at least look at the world through that perspective, because I think not everything is chaos, and not everything is a function of, uh, not everything is kind of chaos, not everything is complex, not everything mm -hmm. is complicated, and not everything is uh, uncertain. Okay. But some dimensions are. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important that we see that reality. Okay, um, let's see that. And uh, because I, I think when we, if we bundle them all together and badge them under the title chaos, mm -hmm. I think we can lose the ability to actually do the right things for each context. And I think there are different things for each one of those contexts. So that's mm -hmm. the first question I'd say. I think the, the next part is that I think the thesis of consulting mm -hmm. doesn't really work in an age of, complexity um, because the so I, I don't think you can consult complexity mm -hmm. um, and you can certainly not consult chaos um, okay I think what you can I think what you have to do is create uh, you have to firstly be um, so in times like this it is um, partnerships are more important than consultancies mm -hmm. transactions I like that because actually you have to have you have to have shared risk in the game to be able to deal with the complexity mm -hmm. because you cannot also predict the future and you cannot mm -hmm. predict the demand. So I think this moment favors a completely different type of relationship formation to, to fix transactions because you cannot firstly say this is five hours of work or 10 hours of work mm -hmm. nor, nor how you get 
to the objective that you're meant to get to in a kind of complex emergency situation. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that we're dealing with is, is a transition where consulting and all these infrastructures were built out of a thesis of a predictable world, mm-hmm. i.e. the world will be predictable and I will engage in this way and I will build you resources. And that, that can be from the way from widgets to human, mm-hmm. human contributions. I think mm-hmm. what we're looking at is increasingly as transition from a predict- predictable, a predictable mechanical worldview to a complex emergent worldview. And that's the function of a recognition of high levels of interdependency, but also high levels of feedback that we're getting in the externalities that we're generating in the world, whether it's climate change or other issues. Mm-hmm. So high, so we're moving away from an infinite world where everything could be seen in its isolation to mm-hmm. uh, an interdependent world, a small world scenario, where we're seeing massive interdependency between things. And those interdependencies are material to the, to the outcome. And I think that starts to create a quite a different condition for mm-hmm. how we operate. And I, and I think so. I, I think that's it's an important precondition to the conversation that I think we have to recognise we're operating in a new reality. That's and I think true. this transit. And I think operating in this reality requires a transition in all of our relationships with the world. Mm-hmm. So I would say it requires us to transition at least four major dimensions of our relationship with the world. Our relationship with the future um, becomes different because our relationship with the future is still linear mm-hmm. and projecting the now to the future. Um, and I think that has to be challenged. Our relationship with nature, which is that of resource and extraction, has to be transformed to being able to be in treaty with nature in relationship with nature. Mm-hmm. Our relationship with things, which are there to be consumed and resources, to actually recognizing things as as part as stewardship, not ownership. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to start to transform our strategic relationships to all these, uh, and then also to each other. The thesis that employment is a thesis of control and subjugation of the other to my will. Mm-hmm. Actually, in a complex emergent world, centralized prediction of what I need to tell the other person becomes less and less valuable. So that is why management theory has been moving from outcome orientation to outcome orientation to increasingly mission orientation. As we recognize a thesis of control no, no longer works in complexity and, theory, in complexity and emergence. Mm-hmm. So I think what we're seeing is a large-scale transition from control linear models to mission uh, mission orientated complex emergent models where you build the capacity at the distributed level and mm. the dist- distributed capacity to drive innovation as opposed to centralized capacity in a linear predictive world so i think our economies of scale and uh, are being challenged centralized economies of scale are being challenged as they no- as universal provision no longer provides in a complex emergent world so i think just to put that larger context in might be helpful i like that I think how you reframe the question around the um, how things are in- interconnected just made me think of something um, up on top of my mind. For example, um, people still call themselves consultants. And um, how do you see this changing uh, radically with what's going on with COVID, where people have to change their way of thinking and people have to change how their way of doing? Um, I I still see people uh, contacting me, for example, and asking, um, "Do you can you help me um, solve this problem? When when do you think that's going to change, or if it's going if it's going to change?" 
Yeah, no, I know. I I think I I find the whole term consultants mm-hmm. uh, consultancy problematic. Okay. So I, I think because I think it doesn't. You can't consult innovation mm-hmm. because uh, exactly the things that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. That it takes emotion. It's not a process problem. So anyone that gives you the perfect process for innovation mm-hmm. hasn't actually understood how to innovate. Oh, that's very um, interesting. What they probably understand. Uh, that I mean, innovation isn't a function of process per se. Mm-hmm. It is also a function of intentionality, and intentionality begets a mechanism and desire for discovery, and that mm-hmm. allows many other things to happen. So I think I have a slight problem with the kind of increasing what I would call proceduralization of innovation, mm-hmm. um, which is I think uh, sort of what I would call a, a caricature of how mm-hmm. you make things. And how do you um, make things? Because I'm interested. How do you? I, I think how I make things is they have to firstly have to have deep intentional alignment, right? Okay. So for me, it, it is about the deep intentional alignment to the problem and why that mm. problem is relevant, and that intentionality to create is more critical than anything else. Mm-hmm. The second thing, what you have to has polymathic capabilities. Mm. So. To be able to innovate in today's world, it is your ability to bridge multiple disciplines. And historically, it's not even today's world. Historically, it is your ability to bridge multiple ways of seeing and doing that allows you to construct that reality. So if you want to deal with a property rights problem, that is as much about understanding business law, as much about understanding new smart contract framework, as much about understanding Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of pro- uh, sort of property based uh, property based capitalism models macroeconomic thesis. It is your ability to fuse across that to create different perspectives that's critical. So mm-hmm. it's intentionality, the polymathic capabilities at a team level, and actually what I would call almost a public accountability to how you drive that. Mm-hmm. So I think context is more critical than process, and capabilities are more critical than process. And then I think the intentionality is even more critical. So, I mean, I, I and I think in that, yes, frameworks of research, and again, all the processes that we see, you know, research are actually these are very iterative systems. You know, I'll give you a perfect example. Mm-hmm. You, you you come with a hypothesis, you give the hypothesis a frame. Uh, you then test the hypothesis with sort of uh, with new inputs, and you break the frame and you reestablish a new frame. It is the continuous ability to do that. That is actually fundamental, rather than actually looking for the perfect mm-hmm. frame or the perfect perfect data points, and that requires a different way of operating because you have to be able to imagine and hold the mission or what you're trying to achieve very clearly. Mm-hmm. So I, I I think this is where I think we've seen far more far too much focus on what I would call the proceduralization of innovation, mm-hmm. rather than actually the intentionality and in creating the conditions for deep thought. The other thing I would add is that. I think our economies and societies are designed mm-hmm. increasingly to actually uh, destroy deep thought mm-hmm. and deep work. So I think one of the other problems that I think is, is our context is fundamentally undermining innovation and mm-hmm. because it doesn't create the capacity for deep work at all. Yes, And that means most of the work that we're seeing is not deep innovation. It's fundamentally what I would call synthesis, i.e. taking one idea, fusing it to another, and creating Frankenstein next generation. <laughs> it's not deep work because we just don't create the, you know, our, our, our studios, our environments aren't constructed for deep work. They're mm-hmm. constructed for actual procedural activity. And I think this is something that I think is fundamentally problematic.
Mm-hmm. So I would say we're looking, you know, we're trying to imagine innovation um, like a management flowchart, as opposed to trying to t- think of it as a context-driven system, mm-hmm. uh, which actually is an emergent product of setting the right context. It's very interesting because one of the things that, that led me to think was how do you, for example, price a, uh, an innovation challenge like this one, where you look at uh, all the complexity and all the factors, and then you have to have all of these players working on a, a problem or a challenge and and make something out of it, right? So do the deep work. How do you invest in deep work? That's what I'm interested in. I think, I mean, this is why I say it is an, it's an equity problem rather than a transactional problem. Mm. Um, you, you can't predict it, so you have to have equity into the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have to have shared shared relationship to that. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, in a way, much of what you're talking about there is creating the context and the backbone and the awareness of the system. So when you when I sort of show systems map, the purpose of a systems map is not to give you a godlike view of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually to show you the interdependencies of these interaction points. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that it is not, you know, even if you get a godlike view, there's no, there's, you don't have centralized power to affect every one of these systems. So the real construction becomes is how do you support the shifting of incentives, the shifting of um, uh, feedback systems, the shifting of um, accountability. So mm-hmm. incentives, feedback systems, accountability, and investment profile. These flows can actually be very powerful in helping a system innovate in response to the the challenges it's generating. Mm -hmm. So you operate almost at a meta level rather than a product solution level. That's very interesting because we have to probably change the way that we uh, do the smart contracts, as you say, which don't exist at the moment, at least from my perspective. I've never seen anyone doing a smart contract with me uh, yet. Um, I think that's right. I'm curious to understand because we, you talked about 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 barriers and about um, obstacles. So I'm curious to understand what do you think is the most significant uh, barrier to innovation? It, well, I think it's our conception of self. <laughs> it's the conception of self. Yeah, I think it is. I, I think I, I think the biggest barrier humans have to making the large transition that we're facing is we have a worldview which is constructed around object thinking. Hmm. And we see everything through the agency of a noun, mm-hmm. um, which means that our worldview is constructed through a thesis of siloed objects, rather than actually seeing things in an age as as uh, becomings, as things that are evolving. We mm-hmm. see everything in the static. I mean, this great example was, you know, uh, some friend of mine. We were having this conversation. And said, "Oh, you know, a mountain is a thing, right?" I was like, mm-hmm. "No, a mountain is just." It's flowing, right? Just not in our time scales. Mm-hmm. Right? Everything flows, not in our time scales. Mm. And so when you see things in flow, you see a completely different worldview. You know, we already know that you know, the body is a multitude of organisms. It's not just me. It's a whole interaction of human and non-human systems massively interacting to create the context that we see around us. So the reality is that, you know, the, the thesis of the human in a spacesuit in the 1960s, going to to the moon, and that being some perfection idea, mm-hmm. was a perfect hyper encapsulation 
of a worldview which is problematic, mm. right? The idea that a human can be perfectly isolated yeah. and then still travel. The reality is we're not. We're massively interdependent with, mm. with our biological system. The best description I've seen of humanity is that we are, we are waves on a sea. We're totally, uh, indivisibly part of nature. Mm. Um, and I th- so I think that worldview is holding us back because the reality is uh, we are already transcending uh, our technologies and our capacities are already building a capacity for almost a planetary consciousness. So, you you know, um, sort of uh, Brenton Benjamin makes a very great analysis talking about how climate change modeling was oh. the first thesis of planetary consciousness. Oh, and I think we're on a... So you could argue that we're in a stage of moving towards planetary consciousness. Yet mm-hmm. our conceptions of self and our and our political conceptions are still constructed not at a planetary scale, but at our ability to be at, at a human, what I would call tribal territorial scales, mm-hmm. and then some complex interactions between them. So I think the fundamental challenge to deep innovation is actually our conception of self. That's very very good. I'm curious to understand because you talk about a, a lot about uh, moralism and you like and, and you talk about our position in the world. Where do you see this right now being uh, used or being um, explored in a very interesting way, or in a way that is it's it, it feels to you that it's moving to it moving us to the right direction? Look, I, I think there's spring there's kind of what I'd call sprinkles of stardust everywhere. Mm-hmm. Whether it's you know uh, the work, I mean, we're, I mean, I could tell you the, the partners we're working with and why they're relevant. Whether mm-hmm. it's the brilliant work of climate climate kick and the work that we're doing on long termism with them, looking at reframing our relationship with the future, mm-hmm. or whether it's the work with Stockholm Stockholm Region, looking at actually how do we think about um, you know mental health and mental health and well being as a societal asset, and what mm-hmm. does that mean in an age of kind of complex in an age of craft. You know, care and high cognitive uh, uh, high cognitive economies and creativity, right? How mm-hmm. do you, how do you, what is the role of mental health as a new public health asset? All the work, you know, in in looking at sort of civic indigenous work that we've been doing with uh, various people, but also you know, led by people like John Burroughs. Uh, Burroughs is an amazing indigenous lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so talking about new kind of reimagining. Our property rights with uh, with nature as a kind of almost a micro treaties relationship with the world. So we're seeing this stuff manifest in lots of places around the whole system. So for me, there's these sparkles of light are happening in lots of places all mm-hmm. over the ground. I think that's where that's where there there is, and I'm sure there are thousands and thousands of others beyond what I'm suggesting. Um, you just you're just triggering a lot of questions in my mind, uh, and particularly the ones the way. Where I'm a part of a a, a solution or a, a small cog in the solution, but then I don't even see the full extent of what I'm working on. Right. So imagine you are, uh, let's say, a developer, and you're working in this uh, big project or big challenge. Let's call it like that because it's it, it's a better frame. Um, how how do you have the perspective as a developer of the uh, the 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 span of the work that you were doing. Because often you see, as you mentioned, the silos. So you're doing this and you do that. And then someone else will do that and will do that. Um, but these challenges seem to be very complex. And 
by uh, omitting the silos or by removing the, the barriers between the silos, how can we promote a conversation between all of these different people in order to create something interesting? And how do you do that with your clients, for example? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think from my side, it, it's as much about working differently than it is mm -hmm. about doing it differently. So, you know, in a way, if you look back at the amount of blogs I used to write, and I <laughs> just run out of time a little bit recently, but I used to write a lot, lot to mm -hmm. be able to effectively communicate what I was thinking. And I used to tweet a lot mm -hmm. because in a way, I would say the problem is not that, the problem is how do you find a new way of working? which is kind of almost deliberative, but also sharing learnings uh, consistently. Mm -hmm. And so that creates new frameworks for, for interoperability. And so you can do it in how you work. You can obviously do it in the technologies that you work. You can obviously do it in, in the kind of intellectual property that you operationalize. You can obviously do it in, you know, in terms of the culture and the organizational frameworks, agile and other things mm -hmm. that create that transparency. So I think it has to be, operate in the how we work to be able to create those sort of frameworks and also recognizing, you know, I, I kind of have fundamentally have a belief that you can see the uh -huh. world in, in, a, in, a, in a grain of sand or in a grain of rice. Uh -huh. So everything is a fractal quality of the world. So I think you can deploy these relationships at virtually any scale and also build massive supply chains, uh, uh -huh. transformations at any scale. You know, I think the best example I've seen is that, you know, the coffee that we have in our hands, you know, if you were to be able to transition and transform that coffee cup into being a next 21st century product, uh -huh. you would have had to change global supply chains, uh, cultures, transitions, sustainable water sources, to just to do that. So you know, everything we eat is at the pinnacle of complex supply chains. So you uh -huh. can pick anything, frankly. As yeah. long as you do it diligently, you can actually drive massive transformation through it. And let's go back to the chaos, the, the, the description that we started with. How well should, uh, how, how comfortable should one be uh, with this chaotic experience or this chaotic um, way of working nowadays that we have to think about so many different touching points uh, in, in, in the 21st century? How much, how important is that for anyone that is starting right now working um, in a consultancy, let's call it like that, or yeah, with some or, or trying to solve a challenge, how important is to understand complexity? Um, I think it's really important to try to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. I think it requires us to behave differently, but mm -hmm. I don't think that the thesis to try to understand everything. Oh, okay. So the biggest fallacy, very biggest fallacy I ever find is that people come in and say, "Well, I've got to understand everything before I can move." Mm. And unfortunately, in complexity, that just doesn't work. So it is your ability to test, provoke, iterate, and actually work with humility in complex situations mm -hmm. and work with openness in those complex situations is actually the marker. So you have to work live, and that requires a new type of behavior, and that requires a new form of humility in the system, and recognizing that you, know, you are part of a whole group of interactions that will occur, and you mm -hmm. can play various roles in that. So... I would perhaps look at it through that frame rather than trying to sort of, because I think the paralysis of trying to understand everything is massive. You recently tweeted something interesting, uh, which sparked my mind around, uh, or changed my uh, perspective around uh, remote work. Um, you said something around, I don't remember the tweet clearly, but I remember the, the gist of it, which was 
they said that um, we're going to have you're going to have to have, with the re new remote kind of uh, way of working, we're going to have to have uh, offices where people can come for an hour or, or, or a full day just to gather their team, work on a problem, and then move to the remote location again. Um, tell me more about Gather, because that, that was interesting. I mean, uh, that's not a theory. That's uh, effectively how dark matter operates mm -hmm. or has operated. So even before COVID, we had, uh, you know, we're a global network of nearly 35 people around the world. And it was very clear to us that actually, you know, the only way we could do the work that we needed was that it had the team had to be global because mm -hmm. we were working in, in all sorts of situations. And at the same time, we recognized that there was, you know, we weren't going to convene everyone physically in one, one office. Yeah. So what became evident was that actually every three months, we three to four months, we would convene the whole team together physically mm -hmm. and spend three, four days together over a weekend and plus, where actually you would build shared learning, shared strategy, shared learning reflection of what happened in the last three months, shared strategy of what we should be doing and what intentionality we should be taking over the next three months, and effectively any critical shared projects in a way, core infrastructure that we need to develop in. And that mm -hmm. framework is as actually a mechanism as a continuous, because also that's where you build nuance, shared language, shared culture, trust, proximity between people becomes a critical piece of infrastructure. And, you know, we used to hire you know, three, four uh, sort of adjacent, but like in Amsterdam, we hired a um, uh, sort of a, almost like a mini, you know, three, four fantastic green uh, mm -hmm. sustainable um, houses where we all where we were living and we were working there. Or in <laughs> uh, in Scotland, we hired uh, it was summer, so we hired some uh, amazing sort of tents and we all lived out there. Or in Berlin, it was actually a series of a series of uh, sort of apartments and we all lived and worked there. So, you know, so, that, so there's a way to do this. And I think what, what became pretty clear to us is that that's the only way because face-to-face -face is critical. But mm -hmm. it also means that you don't, face-to-face -face is so critical that it's hyper-valuable. Yeah. And I think we've been using face-to-face -face in a really poor way mm -hmm. because we've been lazy about face-to-face, -face. adopting face-to-face -face in hundreds of situations when it wasn't the most valuable occurrence. Mm -hmm. I think now we are going to adopt face-to-face -face in a highly valuable way with massive intensive investment because it is going to be treated with the care and due regard it has. Simultaneously, at other times, we're going to actually work, we're going to do deep work, which doesn't require constant background noise, constant communication. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to see a new pattern of, of working emerge, which I think will be quite fundamentally different. One of the things that uh, a lot of people argue against uh, remote work or use as an excuse is, I don't know if it's an excuse or not, but it's, it's the, the relationships and building relationships and how the remote work affects uh, the building of, of relationships um, or the growth of relationships. How do you approach that in the way that dark matter labs work it's totally true mm -hmm. yeah it's totally true i think so this is why the quarterly meetings mm -hmm. and the three four day residentials are critical because you use those residentials to build relationships mm -hmm. right? those are the groundings of the relationships mm -hmm. and and the is that so if you do that three three to every three months do you think that uh, builds uh, enough um, relationship uh, 
it's it's one aspect of it. It's mm-hmm. one aspect of it. I mean, the, you know, we have been fortunate that we've been recruiting within our network, so there's always people. It's a referral based recruitment method, which basically means that there is people recruited within relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also accompanied by people working on projects together simultaneously, kind of missions that they're working on together. Mm-hmm. It's also accompanied by these quarterly meetings. So there's a whole suite of stuff that comes together to do that, um, not just one thing, but it is together. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend uh, anyone that wanted to just move straight to a full remote, a full remote situation like Dark Matters? What What do you recommend them to do? <laughs> I'm curious to understand your perspective on that. Uh, look, I, I think firstly, it's it, there's lots of nuances to this, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. if you you know so. Dark Matters became this organization. We were three of us, and one of us needed to leave to to move to South Korea. And we were like, well, actually, you know what? If you're going to move, let's just change how we work. Mm-hmm. And we just changed how we worked, right? Um, and then that just transformed us. And off the back of that, we just transformed who we were. Now, but this is a nuanced thing. It goes all the way to how you make presence, the hours people work. So when you've got people working in South Korea, people working in Montreal, you have to have a different type of relationship to ship peer-to-peer accountability. You have to change your patterns of working in terms of how do you declare what you're doing every day and how do you invite people to input on what you're doing to get. Mm-hmm. So it requires a fundamental transition in how you work rather than just a uh, rather than just a kind of straightforward uh, sort of straightforward sort of here's the mission you've done. It also requires, I, like I say, I would say it's not remote working. It's mm-hmm. new frameworks of working. It's kind of creating okay. space for deep work, creating the space for deep, high-quality, face-to-face collaborative working. So it's actually seeing it less as going online to seeing it as a new collaborate, new constellation of workspaces. Mm, right? So you're breaking your spaces up into different formats. Like I say, our three to four days a week, which will now become a week, uh, a week every four four months, we, we're going to all work together physically mm-hmm. in the studio, is all about doing certain things together. At the mm-hmm. same time, there are other spaces that we have online and individually that we encourage people to have uh, in different formats. So some people are looking to work Oxford hours, as it's called, where they get up at five and they work till 12 and then they take the afternoon off and then maybe do an hour in the evening if they want to. So people are also changing their work patterns quite fundamentally in how they work and the hours they work as a result of this. Mm-hmm. That requires new forms of accountability of how do I presence myself online? When do I say I'm working? What sort of flexibility do you have? Do you have people on different types of contracts? Some mm-hmm. people say, I'm quite happy to be very flexible and work as I'm needed. At the same time, there are times I'm going to want to do certain things flexibly and take time off flexibly. Whereas mm-hmm. other people say, I want really strong patterns because that's what helps me be rigorous. So I think as this, as the office reorganizes around the distributed capabilities and needs of people's lives, I think we have to find new affordances in the, that reality and new new synchronization moments, both mm-hmm. emotionally but also aspatially and uh, framework. So we use obviously Slack, Notion, everything else. But but that also requires us to have um, you know weekly check-ins. And so we don't do, for example, actionless check-ins. We talk mm-hmm. about what did you discover this week. You know, so the focus of the organization on what did people discover this week rather than actually what, how many actions did you do? So yeah. it creates all sorts of these sort of questions, which have to be, which is all about language, culture. Language becomes much more particular because actually 
you know, it's the framing becomes much tighter on those things as opposed to being what I would call, you know, language in a face-to-face setting is is a is a supporting act to the tone and the human presence. Whereas mm-hmm. in in these sort of communication infrastructures, language has become the presence infrastructure. So it requires quite a serious serious structured shift. And that's what we're learning as we develop. So we've gone from being three to 35 in a purely distributed way, which I think mm-hmm. is an interesting framework. And we're a design office, right? So we're, we're not a production back-end office yeah. where we're tasking out work to people. It's actually how do you do complex creativity across a distribution uh, studio office. I'm curious, like in a, in a, in a, uh, the, the introduction of, of our, our episode, I've, I've described briefly uh, the boring revolution, but I would like to understand from your perspective, what is the boring revolution and why is it important? Because that term is, it's very interesting. Yeah, for me, it came from, you know, very simple things. I trained as an architect mm-hmm. and off the back of doing architecture, uh, you know, I was part of, Building Zero Zero, one of the co-founders with David Saxby. Mm-hmm. We took that and over a period of time we built, you know, we're part of building, helping build a series of organizations, whether it's open desk, open source furniture company, mm-hmm. or WikiHouse, which is open source, uh, open source housing, or social investment structures. Mm-hmm. Um, the big thing we started to realize was underneath all these things, and we also built Architecture Zero Zero, which is an architecture and regeneration organization. What we, one of the big things we realized was underneath all these shiny products and new ideas was actually um, a gap, which is this institutional infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So it was a gap in the business model of actual regeneration would drive a very, you know, people used to say form follows function. Yeah. And we would say form follows contract <laughs> um, and form follows finance, right? So what okay. we really, really, really started to realize was that actually the impressionability and the impression both contract and finance were happening on the nature of what was produced. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, whether it's kind of if you own the phone, well, do you, do you own it? In which case, do you create waste? Do you lease it? What happens if you lease it? Do you create a new form of dependency? Mm -hmm. Uh, Does that create new monopoly power? So you start to realize in the structuring of those relationships, you create new worldviews in terms of how you use and deploy those those infrastructures. And that's just an example. Uh, Whether it's open source housing, you realize actually that, you know, in order to get a mortgage, you had to have new forms of quality assurance and you needed... um, warranties to be able to define yeah. to articulate that quality insurance well without actually knowing without actually building a QA method which massively centralized many things you it was more difficult to build any of these uh, any of this kind of uh, warranty infrastructures mm-hmm. and that was what was driving the passive centralization and the economies of scale because all of these worldviews were constructed out of a worldview of industrialization and centralization so if we wanted to build a decentralized, distributed, democratic world, we would have to think about these institutional infrastructures at a fundamental level. And even the thesis of property, i.e. you own a piece of land and mm-hmm. that land is subservient to you, is a very interesting thesis because it means that the bird, the bees, everything else has no rights on that land. They're just custodians as to your wish because you are godlike on that land. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a very interesting privileging of power constructed just in that relationship. Yeah. So for me, it was all about all these sort of things that underpinning the things, the world that we saw, there was a world that was actually the world of structuring relationships. And those relationship structures had been 
grounded and, and coded into our society mm-hmm. over the last 300 years and over a thousand years. And so 300 years I specifically picked because the Newtonian Enlightenment and sort of 17th century onwards. So what we saw was effectively a very particular worldview, this infinite worldview, this idea of the human as an object. All these worldviews was grounded and mm-hmm. then constructed everything else that flows through it. So unless we can start to change, you know, whether our modern state, our modern theories of governance all come from the Kaiser and his and, and military power and the orchestration of military power uh, in that thesis, so the bureaucratic model that we have comes directly through the thesis of organizing militaries. So we've seen the passive you know, role of kingship and control being the model of bureaucracy and thereby the model of management, which has underpinned a lineage that goes from kings and queens to sort of military power to mm-hmm. managerial power, have are a clean extension of a thesis of control. And if we're going to make the radical transition that we need to make, we have to transform our relationship with bureaucracy and this bureauing revolution, these kind of codes Uh of structuring power. And those things are now possible more than they've ever been as a result of new technological frameworks, whether it's distributed ledger technologies or machine contracting or new models of compliance and new knowledge and awareness of who we are in the world. So I think that's where this comes from. From is an idea that we need a boring revolution focus at all these institutional infrastructures which have been hardwired for thesis of control to be deeply transformed mm-hmm. that's very interesting is that is that um legacy that comes from history uh, that makes it so difficult for us to think about complexity and partnerships um so difficult yes because effectively it's always about you know we're coded to look for the world through a thesis of competition and uh, 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 through a thesis of competition mm-hmm. and resource competition. And the, the challenge is, is that that resource competition worldview world worked in a thesis of a near-infinite world. Mm-hmm. But as soon as we become a finite world and also a small world scenario, actually that resource competition becomes the basis of global war very quickly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the challenge is when that global war infrastructure now involves nuclear weapons, which are available to many, many people, you start to realize that actually the thesis of competition no longer works at the point of actual, when you've got mutual assured destruction on the table. So what we're facing is a structural transition in the thesis of competition, because actually for the first time ever, we're operating at a planetary scale of mutual assured destruction. So competition as a thesis of evolution is coming to the end of a cycle. And the challenge for us is to build an alternative pathway of progress, not dependent on macro competition as the only way of driving progress. And I think that's an institutional problem, not a human problem. Mm. That's about actually, and what I mean by that, that is our projection of what we think humans are as mechanistic, rational, homo-economist beings into our institutional thesis, which is creating the thesis of competition as the only way of driving progress, as opposed to the truism of what humans are. That is why I keep going back to the thesis. The bigger challenge to our future is our conception of self. Does that relate with the 
because that just reminded me the the competition side of it that you mentioned about the the mimetic theory, which is something that is very um, um, it's described very 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 much times uh, in the tech industry. The mimetic uh, the mimetic theory, where people uh, just do whatever they are see someone doing, and how can you build products around that so that there is more competition in a market like um, I don't know. Maybe Facebook is an example. Uh, does that relate in any way? Yeah, sure. I mean, basically, it undermines the thesis of kind of conceptual competition as a means of organizing. And, mm-hmm. You know, you, the thesis of a market as a piece of language is fascinating because the reality is that we don't operate in markets. People do not make discoveries based on price. Mm-hmm. They make discoveries based on mimesis. So ah. in which case, actually, what becomes less and less critical is price, but copying infrastructure. So Mm -hmm. the proximity to be able to copy is more relevant than the allocation and distribution and discovery of price. Mm. And so this is why I think, you know, we talk about us, we're living in a market economy, but the reality is we're in fact living, it's certainly in the human economy, we're living in a mimesis economy. And Mm. it is the ability to, and the proximity to drive mimesis is more valuable than anything else. I just have one more question for you, Indy. What is exciting you right now about like the world and about the, the problems that you're trying to figure out? Or maybe someone that you're working with? Uh, what's exciting me is, um, I think what's ex- exciting, maybe not the right word. But the <laughs> maybe not the right but, word. Uh, yeah, but for me, I think we no longer have the time and the nature of the challenge is more and more visible than it's ever been. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, COVID has triggered and made transparent the challenge mm-hmm. at a systemic level, at a product level, at a human level. Mm. And I think it's going to force our hands. You know, I think the economic crisis is only beginning and the health crisis may not even have really finished its first chapter. Mm. Um, and so what we're about to see is a very big push on us as a global civilization, which is what we are, so the thesis of localism always makes me laugh because the reality is very little of us is local. Mm. Uh, we're actually operating as a globally interdependent civilization. Mm-hmm. It is that actually, you know, we're in the middle of a massive, massive transition. And that I think the first signals of that have already begun. That's what scares me, frightens me, excites me, mm-hmm. makes me get up. I'm curious to understand what, what are those signals or one of those signals. Uh, <laughs> Many. I mean, for for me, there's. I think, I think whether you look at Brexit or Trump, mm-hmm. I think these are signals of um, of the restructuring of global power and relationships. Mm. Whether you look at the vulnerability of food systems, whether you look at our failure to d- drive political innovations in relation to our planetary consciousness of the fact that we're self-terminating ourselves as a species. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the data and the facts is all there. I think we, we haven't created the frameworks to how to transition, largely because we, you know, we often focus on the new, and what we don't yeah. focus sufficiently on is what I would call it, is addressing the lock-ins, the mm-hmm. trauma, the, the historic lock-ins, which are the injustices and, you know, um, yeah, the sort of uh, all these historic lock-ins, and including deep codes, or kind of all the things I spoke about earlier, mm-hmm. 
these deep code structures of property rights and other things. These things are locking us from transitioning. Mm. They're preventing us from transitioning. And I think we have to start to look at them from that perspective. All right, Indy. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. My pleasure, Fabio.